Welcome to the Piano Whisperer Podcast. She just finished doing a song, and even I felt that it was not the best performance. But she was a professional. She moved on and then started just blasting right into the next song. The choir is singing like crazy. Everybody's clapping. Everybody's having a good time. This next song is sounding so good. And over my earpiece, I hear, Alex, can you get up on stage and tell them to stop the song and do the previous song that wasn't so good over again? Wow. <laughs> I was like, okay. Thank you very much, everybody, for joining us for Piano Whisperer. I know it's been a while since our last episode, and I apologize for that, but I'm really glad to be back, and I'm really glad to be here today with my good friend, Alex Lowe. Alex Lowe is a mastering engineer with over 20 years of music industry experience. As owner of Red Tuxedo Mastering, he has put the finishing touches on projects from nearly every genre of music. His work can be heard on Grammy-nominated recordings by Gungor, Ghosts Upon the Earth and Beautiful Things, and Earl Klug, Naked Guitar. Before starting Red Tuxedo in 2002, Alex worked with many notable musicians, engineers, and producers, including Brendan O'Brien, Ricky Keller, Paul McCandless, Derek Trucks, Jimmy Herring, Kofi Burbridge, Outkast, Nine Inch Nails, Curtis Mayfield, TLC, and Aretha Franklin. Alex holds a degree in music production and engineering from Berklee College of Music. He's engineered for many of the top studios in Atlanta, including Doppler Studios, Zach, Z-A-C, Tree Sound, DARP, Silent Sound, La Coco, and Southern Living at its finest. Since its inception nearly 15 years ago, Red Tuxedo has amassed an impressive list of local and national clients. Adapting to industry trends, Alex has expanded Red Tuxedo beyond mastering to include pre-recordist and music playback services for television and film. You can also find Alex working on many of the movie productions around Atlanta. He was recently nominated for an Oscar as part of the production sound crew for the Sony Pictures movie Baby Driver in 2017. During his free time, he enjoys playing the saxophone and the subtle art of charcoal grilling. Alex, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, Ben. Thank you so much for having me. I realize that I need to update that uh, bio a little bit. I've been doing it a little longer, embarrassingly. You know, I'm glad you said it. I thought, I didn't know if Alex was going to get defensive if I said, you know, your bio is terribly outdated. You've done like 100 movies and easily 100, 150 or more music projects. And that's not evident on your bio. No, it's not. And I was like, 20 years? Hmm. <laughs> okay. Well, you've got such an interesting career. I think when people consider the music business, they often don't have a grasp of the range of career possibilities available. And your career is a perfect example of how music can take many paths. Could you talk about your journey from childhood lessons to what you do today? Sure. I agree with you completely. I've always been interested in music. I started by playing the piano that we had at the house and begged for piano lessons, but that never happened. And eventually I got into the clarinet and I picked that up very quickly. And then I actually started dancing for this very well-known New York dancer called Jacques Dembois. Hmm. He was with the American Dance Society. I can't remember exactly. 
But he had a program where he would go to the public schools and get the boys particularly to dance, kind of a modern jazz style of dancing. Hmm. And a lot of kids got involved in it, and it was a lot of fun. But a few of the kids who had a little bit more rhythm were pulled into his own dance studio, and we would do soloist routines. And we would, every year, perform in Madison Square Garden. And that happened for about three or four years. Wow. And that was really important to me because it was a moment where I realized that getting music into the body, physically moving your body, really strengthened the idea of rhythm, but also feeling the emotion of music and how it moves you. Yeah. Anyway, moving on from that, about 14 years old, I picked up the saxophone and I picked it up quickly and I practiced a lot. I was more dedicated and that led me to teachers that I took lessons from. I eventually, instead of joining the school band, I would try to gather the professors and the teachers that played an instrument and create a small little rock band. And we would put on shows at the cafeteria or something like that. That sounds fun. <laughs> Play a bunch of Bruce Springsteen. and <laughs> I did that quite a bit. I joined a bunch of choirs during that time. And then I graduated high school and I went to University of Florida where eventually I got into the music program there, decided this is what I really wanted to do. Mm -hmm. And that's the moment when I had to go tell my parents, hey, I want to be a musician. Mm -hmm. Of course, like every other parent that hears that, they think about the struggling musician playing in bands, trying to scrape up rent, yep. not getting anywhere with it. And only the super dedicated and lucky can get some sort of a living at it. Yep. But I just didn't back down, and I went and eventually got into Berkeley College of Music, where I met you. Yes. And we hung out for a long time, yes, and it was a good time. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Boston was great, a great experience. But I entered in to be the greatest saxophone player in the world, like we all do. Yep. And after a year of doing that, I realized there were a lot better sax players than me. I switched my major to engineering, and I fell in love with it, really. Hmm. And I went through the rest of my Berkeley career engineering. And I still played a lot. Yeah, you sure did. I did. And then when I graduated from there, I went to Atlanta and interned for four months at Doppler Studios. And it was minimum wage, which was fine with me. I found an apartment for pretty cheap. Rent was really cheap back then. But I still needed some money. So I went up to the studio owner. It was a big commercial studio. Yeah. It was not like a small little spot. It's huge. Yes, I've been there. Yeah. And unfortunately, it's closed now. Hmm. It moved on, as a lot of studios have in the past few years. But I went up to them and I said, listen, I want to come in early to be able to vacuum the whole studio up. And I also want to take these other little jobs that some of the lesser engineers are doing, and I can take it off their shoulders, like cleaning the tape machines and doing all this extra little work just to lengthen my day. Part of it was to learn, but also part of it was so I could make a little extra money. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and that worked. Yes, yeah, sure. And what happened because of that is they saw that I had a commitment to it. And when my internship finished, they asked me to become an, an assistant engineer for the sessions that were coming in, the night sessions. And I did that for many, many years. And I worked with the Curtis Mayfields, the Aretha Franklins. I worked on the 1996 Olympics where... I met Stevie Wonder, and we worked with the big choir, and it was magnificent. Hmm. If there was a shining point in our musical career, it was actually during those assisting years that I met some big heavyweights mm -hmm. and learned how to be professional 
and treat them like human beings as well and not get so wrapped up in their fame. Right. And anyway, that carried on to becoming an engineer where I started working at Southern Living at its finest. And the owner of that particular studio was a big musician and had a lot of contact. And I was able to record a lot of bands, which was not common in Atlanta at the time. It was a big hip hop R&B scene. Mm -hmm. So to be actually able to record bands and actually working with musicians instead of drum machines and stuff like that was a treat. And I learned a lot about collaborating with a group of people to create music. That pretty much launched me as a recording engineer and mixer. And out of that studio, I also started mastering because he had a small little mastering setup. And so I just jumped in feet first. Much of what you do is taken for granted by listeners. You're truly a behind-the-scenes artist. And when people hear terms like mastering or music engineering or Pro Tools operator, I don't think people have an idea what you do specifically and what impact you make on the music. Can you talk about how the music changes after you've finished with your work? Sure. Mastering and mixing and engineering, that's just recording the music. I'll go in and record a band, all the little parts of the drums, the snare drum, the tom, the hi-hat. I'll record all of those individually. I don't want people to take this for granted. You spent years trying to figure out, how do I get a good piano sound? How do I get a good snare sound? And choosing the right microphone and the right direction that it's facing and how far from each instrument it is. That's years of study, right? It is. And experimentation. Yeah. So when people are listening to music, say they're listening to a rock song, there are so many mics involved. And if you had mic'd it differently, for example, or gotten a different sound, or you mix it a certain way, some of the color that we hear today may not have ever made it onto the record. I mean, isn't it even plausible to say that the proper engineering could be responsible for making a, a song popular just because it has a great vibe to it? Absolutely. Those recording engineers and the producers are able to take a song and knowing the tools that they have to turn it into the number one hit from the cars with all those weird elements that are going on. Yeah, Actually, the cars is a great example of an older band that was very studio heavy, and they really used the studio as an instrument to help develop the song. They would come in with a song idea and it was nowhere near complete, but then the producers and the engineers would start developing all these little puzzle pieces and work it all together. Yeah, it creates an ambiance. And like you could have a real bright ambiance, you can have a dark ambiance, you can have a muted ambiance. I mean, there's so many things that you can do. And we listen to music, we're like, oh, I'd like that song. I like the chorus. It's so much more than that. So then tell me about mastering. So this is where I have to make an analogy because mastering is this weird art. Mm -hmm. So the recording is like picking out the ingredients of a meal, right? Mm -hmm. You just pull them into your kitchen and they're all sitting on the table. Mm -hmm. Mixing is you take all those elements and you start making the dish. Let me add some spice here. Let me add some elements to help flavor it. So that's what mixing is, Mm -hmm. is when you back off on that, use more of this. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you go through the whole recording process and you get to the mixing process and you go, you know what, that keyboard part that we spent three days on, it's not working. No, the saxophone part. They're always going to keep the keyboard part, right? Exactly, Alex. Let's get So that saxophone part is not working. We're going to just only use a little portion of it because it's really nice. Or we'll just use that little piece right there and make it this little hooky thing. 
So a lot of times in the mixing of it, a lot of elements of the recording are thrown away. So that's the mixing. You're putting the elements in. The mastering is taking a mix. And most of the time, it's just a two-track stereo mix like you hear on your headphones, left ear and the right ear. That's what a mix is, two tracks. And then we take it and we sweeten it up. Mm -hmm. For instance, if it is mixed on speakers that are small and they had no big speakers that could reproduce the low end correctly, a lot of times those mixes, because they were mixed on small speakers, are very bass heavy because the mixer will compensate for the lack of bass in the mix room and push the bass more. Mm -hmm. So the mastering engineer usually has a more high fidelity, wider frequency response speaker system, and they will shape it. In my analogy of the cook, mastering is knowing how hot do I need my oven and how long does it have to cook for? Mm -hmm. And all those elements are gonna start getting melted into each other. In mastering, you press things to compete with the genre of music that you're working on, I'm not going to make a folk song hit as hard as a heavy rock song. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to make a heavy rock song hit the same way as a hip hop song. Mm -hmm. So you got to have the understanding what the different genres, what they need the music to sound like and what they're going to be competing with. So you, you just bring them up to that level. Yep. I sense that you're probably fairly intuitive with all that stuff because you are a musician and that enables you to respond naturally to what you think the music needs, right? I think it helps. Yeah, sure. So when you're working on big projects, some of them live, like the 1996 Olympic opening and closing ceremonies, what does that mean exactly? Well, a lot of that stuff has been pre-recorded. I see. They can't count that all the technical things go right on the day when it's being broadcast to a billion people. Mm -hmm. There's just too many elements that could go wrong. So a lot of the elements in that music has been pre-recorded and what we did at Doppler is pre-record a lot of that music, all that choir stuff that happened in the opening and closing ceremonies. We recorded in the studio, then that was played out, and the choir was there, and I'm sure they were singing their hearts out, but what's really being heard is a pre-recorded track. But were you having to mix that then when it was recording live? When you say recording live, to me as an engineer, I feel like that's an actual live performance. The audience is there and they're watching the people play. That's a live recording. But aren't they doing that during the Olympics? No, that's all pre-recorded. Okay. The lead singers might be singing live, but they'll be singing live to a pre-recorded track that is pumping into their in-ear monitors. So what are you doing then when you're on that project? What does that mean? So I'm in the studio. We started recording for that months before the Olympics even got here. We were recording the bands and the drums and everything else with the choreographers for the whole setup that was going to do, and even the lead vocal, because God forbid that microphone goes out. I see. Then they boop, hop in the lead vocal. Gotcha. Yeah, I got it. So now people might be listening to this saying, why in the world are we interviewing someone that's not necessarily a pianist? But I want to get to the point that a lot of this work that you do is actually on the keyboard, right? Like without your keyboard skills, without developing your piano skills, which I know you had to take years of piano at Berkeley, doesn't that make it a whole lot easier to do what you do? Absolutely. And I use the piano a lot. I would not be good to perform, but I go to the piano to try to figure out what chord they're going to because I'll hear something wrong in a mix yeah. and I'll try to find what chord they're playing. 
and that will allow me to pick out that instrument that's not working quite right. Yeah. Or I'll be fixing a melody on singers, mm -hmm. and I'll be using the piano to help me find the right notes to go to. Uh, I definitely lean on my ear as well for that. And the piano, I use it for percussive stuff where it's not a tonal thing. I'm, I'm hitting it like a drum, and I'm, I'm adding some sounds underneath the score or something like that. Yeah, you're using it as a compositional tool. Before we move on to our next segment, I want to thank our sponsor, Classic Pianos, who makes this podcast possible. So, Alex, give us a day in the life of Alex Lowe today. Alex Lowe today. Mm -hmm. Alex Lowe during COVID. Whew. In February, I started getting a job mixing television shows for Tyler Perry Studios. Mm -hmm. And we went down with everybody else COVID while we were trying to figure this stuff out. And then in March, a lot of us picked back up, but we did it out of our house or our home studios. So a lot of times my day starts off with me receiving tracks and I'll start working and cleaning dialogue because the stuff has been recorded on set. Tyler Perry has a beautiful setup, the big setup, should I say, where he can pull in a whole production and keep them on his base for two or three weeks at a time while he films his episodes. And they'll assemble a 25-minute long show. So I'll get these shows, and I'll work on a, a show or two, and I'll start cleaning up the rustling of the shirt, the person getting patted on the chest. And I'll take all that stuff out and try to make the dialogue as clean as possible. Nowadays, you see people on an interview, you see they'll have a lav strapped onto their collar or something like that. Mm -hmm. When we're filming, that stuff is still there, but it's hidden underneath the shirts or stuck to their skin or something like that. So that stuff is very a big chesty voice. But then there are also the booms. They're called boom mics. You see that guy with the big stick hanging his microphone over the actors and stuff like that. So we'll combine those two to get the best sound, get the real live ambience, but also get the direct signal of the voice so the actor still sounds big and full. Because a lot of times the booms because of the camera angle and the headroom above the actor, they can only get in so far before getting caught by the camera. So I go through and blend those things in. Sometimes there's a generator running in the background. We have really great software now that can take that stuff out. So a lot of my day now is spent literally cleaning up dialogue. Once I've gone through that, I will start blending in the music and also the background noise that you might hear. A lot of times we just dump in room tone record a quiet room and the room itself will add it into it to create a sense of space around the uh, actors and that's done a lot and then we'll also bring in the sound effects and we'll enhance sounds like someone getting punched it's not usually the microphone picking it up it's a little sound effect that's timed in there right with the punch to make it sound more impactful at the same time i'm still getting mastering projects i just finished a great punk album by this atlanta band called the blood plums <laughs> and they uh hope to come out actually i think they're coming out this with it this week so it's amazing how fast we can come out with music now after the process has been finished yeah and so i'll still master bands and every now and then i'll get a mix to do so give us an anecdote or two any career moment that stands out to you there's one i was working with a big gospel singer we were doing actually a live recording with a church, and it was gospel. So I kind of stuck out in that church a little bit, but which was fine. Everybody was professional. But I was the guy on set 
ordering things around and I had a headset and they could call in and be like, can you move that mic? Try to stay out of the camera's way. I was dressed in black, so you just kind of go up there and move the mic. So that was easy. But she just finished doing a song and even I felt that was not the best performance, but she was a professional. She moved on and then started just blasting right into the next song. The choir is singing like crazy. Everybody's clapping. Everybody's having a good time. This next song is sounding so good. And over my earpiece, I hear, Alex, can you get up on stage and tell them to stop the song and do the previous song that wasn't so good over again? <laughs> wow. <laughs> I was like, okay. So there's probably about 500 people in the congregation. There was a whole big 60 voice choir, the band. And so I jumped up on stage and I said, stop. You got to stop. Wow. I'm getting it from the producer. Can we do the other song? And the lady saw the stress in my face and she laughed and she just patted me on the shoulder and she goes, yes, absolutely, son. And she turned to the band, so let's go back to the other one, man. That was nice. I was just sweating bullets. But, you know, it was amusing and uh, it was one of those, okay, let me pick myself up and do this moment. Wow. Any personal professional victory you want to share? There's one that happened fairly recently. I was working on this movie called First Man with Ryan Gosling. Mm-hmm. And my job was communications. I was working on all the space scenes and the rocket scenes and the plane scenes. I didn't do a lot of the dialogue scenes. Even though there was dialogue, I was more involved in the dialogue when they were inside the capsules and inside the rocket ships and inside the X-15 and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. So they were all in suits. And when they put on those suits, they couldn't hear each other. There were bubbles over their heads. The space suits, you mean? Yeah. When they put on the spacesuits and their helmets, you're not going to be able to hear the person talking to you. So my job was communications between the director and the actors. And there were so many technical terms that we actually had readers on the sidelines that would read the technical terms and pump that into their ears so the actors would hear the term and then they would repeat it back. Wow. And then we would also capture that dialogue. We had a microphone tucked in right at the top of the helmet. So that would capture the dialogue. It actually sounded really good inside the helmet because it's a small enclosed space. The only problem is that those suits got really hot and the helmets, the visors would fog up. Yeah. So we had air pumping into the suits the whole time. And it was very hard for the actors to hear. So I devised this whole plan on how to gate stuff out when the actor talked because it was like, shh. The whole time, it was just in their ear. And I didn't want them to spend seven hours hearing that in their ear all day long. Wow. So I devised this way to mic those up. And we were still struggling because the regulator on the air was pretty much off or full blast. And there was no variable in between. So we were struggling a lot. The fingers were getting pointed at me for the lack of control of the sound and how we couldn't get the dialogue as clean as they wanted even though we were achieving a lot. So this is the good part. When it's Ryan Gosling's turn to come in, he was also a producer on the film. He looked at me and said, why can't we get the sound right? I said, we've got to get control of this air. I can't do anything with that high level of air volume flowing into your spacesuit, literally below the microphone. That's what I'm up against. So he turned to the guy controlling the air and he said, can't you just put the air in 50%? And the guy was like, nope, sorry, it's on or off. That's when Ryan Gosling was like, wait, this is a $100 million show. You're telling me you can't regulate this? And I had been working for two weeks trying to get this so tightened down that 
suddenly he was the one sweating bullets. <laughs> <laughs> and they got it under control. And I had worked so hard to get everything under control that once he put a regulator on there, it was, it was just heaven. It sounded so good. And that was a really great feeling that I was blind. I was going through it blind, fighting this massive problem that wasn't even my fault or my responsibility, should I say. Yeah. I voiced it, but no one was wanting to listen. I had worked so hard to get it as clean as I could with that on top of it, that once they cleaned it up, it was great. And we heard back from Post that they didn't have to re-record any of the dialogue from any of those space shots because it came out so clean. So that was really great. Nice. That's a great victory story. Cool. So you said somewhere in an interview I read, I forget what, it was a local Atlanta publication that, you know, it's feast or famine in the music industry sometimes. So what do you love and not love about your career? One of the biggest things I love about the career is the constant challenges, and I've searched for them. If a job gets complacent or if a job gets redundant, I don't do as well in those. I like the challenges. I really hunt for them. And I take on the really big shows, even knowing that they're going to be very stressful. Because when I rely on my skills and I make up stuff right on the spot to try to get through problems, and I've done it so many times, jumped off that cliff, there's a thrill to that. So that's what I really like about that job. Yeah. What I don't like about the job is I'm not the greatest politician. There's the passion, and then there's the art, and then there's the music and everything else, and the show must go on and everything. But there's a lot of politics that I'm not very good at, mm -hmm. that a lot of people are, and they know how to put themselves in places and scenarios that help push themselves forward. So I struggle with that. I used to teach, and I would start this business class, and I always put up on the board, you guys are walking into the music business, so let's take a look at all the S's. Let's take two lines and put two lines right through all the S's. Show me where the money is. And there's one S in music and three of them in business. That's the truth. You got to get that business stuff. And I struggle with that. I feel I've accomplished a lot, but I could be better. I hate it when I have to fight to get paid or get studios paid. They don't understand that I've made a big effort to make this happen for them and put my heart and soul into it. And then I have to chase money. And that's not a great place to be for anybody. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Well, I appreciate the candor on that. So advice to students or professionals, what would you offer to people from your own journey? There's that saying, luck is when preparation meets opportunity. Mm -hmm. And I believe there's a third element to that is a bit of courage. Mm -hmm. Awesome. So I think what's really important is to know that when you dedicate yourself to whatever skill, mm -hmm. that that dedication itself will start to open doors and make you realize that there are other things you can do with that skill. Yeah. Because I did play saxophone and I worked on my long tones a long time. This is one small thing. I can tune vocals really well. I have a very good sense of pitch in relation to the song that is being played. Mm -hmm. And then being a Pro Tools operator, I knew I wanted to become good at it and fast at it. I had no idea I was going to be editing dialogue. Mm -hmm. So keeping myself open to opportunities that come up from using the skills that you have. And sometimes you might not even feel so confident that you can do it. And you may not be entirely good at it at first, but there's something to be said about getting paid to learn something as well. 
as long as you can do it well enough to make it by. Yeah, in the beginning and then refine it. The courage, that's a good takeaway. And I would say one takeaway I have from your overall story is how proactive you've been, despite the fact that you're not a political guy and that you don't want to play that game although I'm sure you must at some points need to, you put yourself in positions to take on projects and to be vulnerable. And as you say, to have courage, I see a great deal of proactivity in your career trajectory. I think that's, that's inspiring in and of itself. Thank you. I question it sometimes. <laughs> well, I think the proof is in the pudding. When I was looking at your resume, you know, I know you, first of all. I know you and I've known you for decades. And I look back and I say... You've done so many things. I mean, look at all the films and the TV shows and the albums. The summation of your work is vast. And I think you're a very humble guy. I think you've done a lot. And I think you have been open to the various paths that have presented themselves to you. And I think it's really great that you're willing to come on. It's an example of what can you do with music training? What can you do with your love of music? Though you may not be a performer or a teacher or whatever, there are so many paths available. And I think your career is a wonderful example of how that can manifest in a rewarding way and one that suits your personality too. So thanks for being here. I, it's great to catch up with you in this way. Great. Thank you, Ben. I really appreciate you having me. You bet. My pleasure. And I want to thank Classic Pianos too, who has made all of these podcast episodes possible. And if you want to check out more episodes, please visit our website. It's pianowhisperer.org. And this podcast is available on virtually every streaming platform. So please do visit us and feel free to write if you have any questions at all. And we look forward to catching you next time. Thanks again for listening. Thank you for listening to today's episode. And thanks again to our sponsor, Classic Pianos, who makes these ongoing podcasts possible. To learn more about Piano Whisper and to hear earlier broadcasts, please visit pianowhisperer.org. We would be grateful if you would take a minute to rate and review us on whatever platform you use, Spotify, Apple Music, Google Play Music, Stitcher, Podbeam, and TuneIn. See you next time.